Hello, and thank you for watching The World This Week in partnership with The Daily Beast. Joining us from London is Nico Hines, a world editor at The Daily Beast. We'll be speaking to you in a second. Hello to you, uh, Nico. Um, here in the studio, we have Vivian Walt, correspondent at Time Magazine. Hello to you, Vivian. Next to Vivian, Good we evening. have Mark Berlay, AFP correspondent based in Brussels. Yep. Saw some protests uh, this week, didn't you? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Tractors galore. Uh, across the, the set from uh, Vivian and Mark, our senior reporter, Catherine Norris-Trent. Uh, good to have you Hi. in the newsroom between assignments. Right? Where are you headed out next? It's nice to be here. <laughs> <laughs> so um, we're going to be discussing a number of uh, issues here on the world this week. You can follow the discussion on social media as well as listen to any of the streaming services. Nearing four months of war in Gaza and the humanitarian crisis and the mounting civilian death toll have triggered growing international calls for a ceasefire. Amid intense diplomacy, a deal may be taking shape. The first truce in November lasted just seven days. This one could endure for one or two months and free many or all of the remaining 100 or more Israeli hostages. Um, first thing I want to talk to you, Catherine, um, you've been on the ground a number of times. Uh, Hamas is reportedly reviewing this deal. What are they scrutinizing? Well, they would very much like, I believe, um, according to, you know, what's come out from Qatari officials, that this would be a permanent ceasefire rather than a pause in the fighting. But Israel and Netanyahu is absolutely not agreeing to that. So they want to see as many of their prisoners in Israel released as possible. Um, and it, apparently we're at the stage of a draft agreement. And that's going to be actually, we should keep an eye on it here in Paris because this weekend there's these high-level talks um, between, you know, the CIA director, William Burns, you've got Qatari officials in town, Egyptian officials in town, um, Israeli officials as well sitting down. So we could see movement. These things can be very slow because obviously there's no direct talks um, between Israel and Hamas leadership. Needs to doesn't need to be said really, but they're so far apart on what they want that it is very very slow work. It looks like there could be two potential. Um, 30-day segments with various exchanges of prisoners in, in various orders. And then after that, that's the big question at the moment, that especially Hamas are, are, are trying to work out how long they can keep this pause in, in the fighting going, because obviously that suits them. They can try and regroup and, and rearm or get themselves in any kind of better shape that they can. Uh, Nico, um, when you're looking at this deal compared to what we saw in November, um, if it does go through, would it be safe to say this would be transformative for the region? Well, it would certainly be transformative for the poor civilians who are trapped there in Gaza and enduring this kind of hellish onslaught. Um, it is a very interesting question, and there's obviously been a lot of um, discussion and debate and, and anger in Israel uh, at talks of a kind of six-week ceasefire because apparently a lot of people in the uh, war cabinet that was held uh, this week are saying you know three four weeks absolute maximum because it, it is really hard if you if you look at it from the kind of military perspective if you're trying to prosecute a, a war against Hamas and to degrade their facilities which was is the stated well I mean if we look at the stated Israeli aims it's to wipe out Hamas entirely now how does that add up or, or collect with uh, giving them six weeks to rearm, to get ready, to re-prepare, to dig new trenches. I mean, it's very, very hard to see how the war can then sort of continue on 
after a six week pause. So potentially we are looking at uh, perhaps a finally a winding down of this conflict, but it's, it's very, very hard to predict how the Israelis would react even once um, all of the hostages have been freed. Perhaps that would then free them up to be even more um, brutal in their recriminations. Yeah, Vivian, are you as optimistic that this could lead to a winding down? I'm not really. Um, I think that is quite an optimistic scenario. I mean, I hope Nico's right, but it seems to me perhaps more likely that one side or the other is going to break the ceasefire. That's a long time to have two sides who essentially hate each other with the incredible ferocity to hold off from any attack. Um, and it, it, it just seems like one's placing a lot of hopes on this. And as Nico says, what comes after that? We haven't had peace talks for 15 years. Um, and now they have to kind of restart the entire, like, infrastructure, trying to piece together some kind of sustainable solution, essentially from scratch or kind of worse from scratch um, at this point. Uh, Mark, is there a paradox here? The Americans have been pressuring Israel to limit civilian casualties, to end this war in 2023, to end this war in January. Neither of those obviously happened. So putting Israel on a timeline perhaps sees the IDF intensify its operations before a deal does take place. I think the, the political side that you're alluding to is really interesting. I mean, you know, the American presidential elections coming up, Biden has been an all-out blank check friend to Israel throughout this, and um, it's costing him in some ways at home. Um, not really sure how that's going to play in his elections. And obviously there's Netanyahu with his whole political considerations where there are increasing or continuing protests of, uh, of uh, people wanting the conflict to stop so, the Israeli, so negotiations can happen, so the hostages can come out. Washington seems to be pinning their hopes on that, that maybe this could give the opposition some leeway to, to, to gain popularity. <laughs> Always risky for America to get too involved in Israeli politics. It's sort of like they, they, they seem to want to embrace it in a warm hug and sort of say the words that they want, at least publicly. But they, you know, the direction from my understanding of it, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, it looks like Netanyahu has his own head in whatever he decides. He'll take the American political cover and the weapons and do what he wants. And a lot of observers say for his own um, political survival. So I'm not really sure how that factors in. You'll know a lot better than I would. Well, um, I'm not a Middle East expert, but certainly on the ground in Israel, I mean, so many people you speak to just say, look, he's trying to keep the war going. To, to save his political career because there is a sense that if when the hostages are brought back home if this war somehow winds down then he's done the economist published a poll i think this week saying that 15 percent of israelis wanted him to stay in power after the war i mean i find that a very high figure given the the interviews that i've been doing but you know he's trying to fight for his political survival and that you know and also his freedom because you know with looming prosecutions he could very well end up behind bars so that's also a factor so where in does a ceasefire figure into his that consideration. Right. Well, the Americans are putting increasing pressure and they're dangling the carrot of normalization um, recognition with Saudi Arabia, which would be a big um, a big prize for the Israelis. The Americans are getting increasingly frustrated, of course, with Netanyahu um, and they're trying to 
push for this ceasefire, perhaps, you know, ram, really ramp up the recognition of some kind of or the drive towards some Palestinian state and also try and push for, for this, this kind of deal with Saudi Arabia to reshape the Middle East. It's very ambitious, but I think that's what they're aiming to do. And Netanyahu, of course, and his right-wing allies in this very far-right-wing government will be doing whatever they can to try and not let that happen. That's why we see these outrageous statements from members of his government who are on the, the far right, basically saying things which seem completely irreconcilable with this. We've heard the Americans call for the creation of a Palestinian state. We've seen Israeli leadership publicly rebuff those calls, reject them outright rather than behind uh, closed doors. Uh, this week, we also saw one of the uh, strongest critiques yet by the Biden administration since the war began, but not directly addressing the war. The U.S. president approved sanctions on four Israeli settlers accused of attacking Palestinians in the occupied West Bank. Here's how a mayor of an Israeli settlement uh, reacted. The executive order signed by the President of the United States is both disappointing and surprising. You would expect President Biden to look into the facts before signing such an order. As a mayor in Judea and Samaria, I can guarantee that the figures being quoted by the international community are nowhere close to reality. Nico, no surprise, uh, Israel calling it unnecessary, uh, the Biden administration's move there. Uh, but do you think it will lead to any lasting changes in the occupied West Bank? This is a thing, the violence that we've seen since the October 7th attacks has spiked in the occupied West Bank and oftentimes doesn't get enough coverage uh, that it deserves with the war going on in Gaza. Yeah, well, I mean, I think we have to separate the two things. I think what America is doing is finding a way to put pressure on the Israeli government to do what it's asking it to do, um, which is a kind of separate issue as to whether, um, you know, the government in Jerusalem wants to actually stop the violence in the West Bank, which I think is a crucial part in finding a lasting peace. So I think we should separate those two things. Um, I don't think Joe Biden thinks he can personally have an impact um, on that settler violence in the West Bank. I think it's just a part of the pressure that they're ratcheting up. And I think another interesting part of the pressure that perhaps is being um, influenced is that I don't know if you've seen David Cameron uh, this week, the British Foreign Secretary has been saying that Britain might kind of unilaterally recognise a Palestinian state or he's been hinting that there might be some sort of um, move for Britain to kind of come out ahead of America and to say that there should be a Palestinian state and even say that there is a Palestinian state. Now, these are big, big changes and there's no way that someone as experienced as David Cameron, who obviously used to be the British Prime Minister, would be saying these sorts of inflammatory things if he hadn't got support from Washington. So I also wonder if that's a kind of second prong to this pressure which is now ratcheting up on Netanyahu to try and make some progress towards a ceasefire, towards figuring out a way out of this conflict, which is what Washington wants um, and what Netanyahu does not want. Yeah, Vivian, you wanted to say something? Yes, I mean, definitely, I, I think Cameron's announcement was very significant and the EU has been saying this kind of discreetly in a more discreet way for weeks now saying they are not prepared to discuss anything short of a two-state solution. Um, they've been saying it kind of loud and clearly um, here in Paris and other capitals. So it seems to me that what's ahead is certainly 
the EU and the UK, we'll see if Washington can go that far, um, effectively on paper anywhere, de anyway, declaring a Palestinian state. It's hard to see what in practice that means. Um, that you don't really have free borders, you don't have a currency, you don't have any coherent government. So, um, but I think it would be very significant to come out and actually say that, effectively saying to Netanyahu, um, your days are over um, and you're, you've totally failed and we're just moving on without you. Um, I, I think it would be quite a, quite a move to make. And, and all, really maybe the only move they can make. And all the while we have the risk of a wider regional uh, conflict. Uh, this Friday, President Joe Biden and First Lady Jill grieving, uh, meeting, uh, grieving families at Dover Air Force Base to honor the three American soldiers that were killed in a drone attack in Jordan, Washington, blamed an Iranian-backed militia group in Iraq for that attack. The Pentagon warning that a multi-tiered action is coming after three U.S. soldiers were killed uh, there. Here's the Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin. We'll have a, a multi-tiered response. Uh, and, uh, and again, we have the ability to, uh, uh, to respond uh, a, number, in a, a number of times depending on what the situation is. We believe that this was uh, done by an element of what is known as the uh, axis of resistance. Uh, and uh, these are Iranian proxy groups. Uh, and how much Iran knew or didn't know, we, we don't know. But it really doesn't matter because Iran sponsors these groups. It funds these groups. Mark, there is difficult debate in Washington this week about how the Americans should respond. What is that line between deterrence and escalation? Well, you know, America sent a couple of aircraft carriers out to the region as deterrents against Hezbollah, Iran's proxy in Lebanon, but uh, has been constantly, consistently signaling, along with Tehran, that they do not want a direct and open conflict. You know, three American soldiers killed that we know the way the Americans want to react, that demands a response. Where do you go with that? It looks like, I mean, you know, if we're going to talk bluntly, it looks like basically attacks on um, proxy targets in Syria and Iraq, rather than hitting Iran itself. Um, they don't want an escalation, but how, you know, again, for Biden, you know, <laughs> we're sitting in Europe, we're not in America, but like, uh, how does he do a response that looks tough enough in an election year with Republicans and now, with how, the how much pressure is he under by the re re Republican lawmakers? Uh, well, a, a lot. I mean, you know, the, the Republicans have shown that they're willing to take foreign policy hostage to domestic issues over Ukraine. And for, for them, I mean, they're, they're going to push this as far as it goes. And, you know, we're not talking about the subject tonight, but I'm sure we'll be back talking about Trump's uh, mm. steamrolling road towards the White House. I'll leave that off the table for now. <laughs> but, uh, you know, he, he's, he's got, you know, he, the commander in chief, Miss... America here will uh, <laughs> confirm, you know, he's, he's in a tough bind. How do you not have this blow up where essentially the American highly developed, highly sophisticated American military shields expanded into other territories in the Middle East, which we'll, then will get a non-sophisticated reaction, but a very durable and quite savage one in response. Uh, you know, as I, th I think it was Blinken this week, was it this week or last week, saying, you know, we're, we're looking at the, the most tinderbox situation in the Middle East in, mm. you know, in decades since, what, 70, 
six or something. You know, it's 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 looking. On an escalation ladder, you can never predict what the other side is going to do in response. You think you know. Uh, you know, when we hear uh, Secretary Austin sort of saying, you know, we don't know how much control Iran has over its proxies. I mean, the the Houthis, the the Iran Iraq uh, Iran Syrian uh, Iraq Syrian uh, proxies, Hezbollah. I think we know that it's pretty much a direct line, but. Uh, it, I suspect that the Americans know a lot more, but they're publicly saying that we don't know to try and contain it to areas that are away from Iranian territory for now. But if the escalation ladder gets out of hand, the plans are drawn up. If we see aircraft carrier movement, if we see Fifth Fleet movement around Bahrain, I think we can see, and, you know, the Americans, as I understand, using um, Saudi territory for for landing takeoff of their planes as well. We'll see enough movement ahead of time to sort of see if it, does go up to a period involving Iran. You know, I was based in Iran for a while and I'm very much aware that tensions are rising, the awareness is rising there. Yeah, Vivian. I mean, that said, I think that the great majority of Americans have no appetite for another war. They've just gotten out of two major wars that cost the US trillions of dollars and many thousands of lives. And... I think that there's really a kind of sensitivity that they, whatever happens, whatever this response is, they just simply don't want to be dragged deeper into it. Um, and that's the calibration that uh, that's being made at the moment and really hard to see it, like what point they might be, you know, they might be tipped into a deeper involvement that right now they don't intend. Yeah, Catherine, while you're covering this uh, war on the ground, how have you noticed the U.S. position uh, shifting over time? Well, of course, at first, Joe Biden went to Israel right after the Hamas attacks on the 7th of October and said, we stand fully with Israel. And over time, the, you know, the discourse has becoming much more tense officially from, from uh, him and from Anthony Blinken and other U.S. officials into downright contradiction. Um, so it's becoming much terser. I mean, it's still diplomatic, but, you know, now uh, sanctioning these for settlers from the West Bank is another signal. They're ramping it up as, as much as they can. You can imagine behind the scenes that the language is, is a lot tougher. But there's a clear frustration that the Americans have got with the Israelis and a sense that they are, well, we're going to try and, I don't know, try and work on other channels, bypass them perhaps, and, uh, and work on this wider strategy for the Middle East because it's just a frustration in that they don't seem to be able to make Netanyahu do what they want him to do. Uh, Nico, your view from London. Um, the president of the United States is an unpopular 81-year-old trying to stop a regional conflict. How's he doing? Well, look, I think uh, I think the the point is, I think Vivian was touching on it there, that most Americans don't really care um, about what's going on in the Middle East, let's be honest. Uh, obviously, it's becoming a bit of an issue um, as we get into this kind of Palestinian um, versus Israeli um, debate and there were some protests and stuff. But what exactly how Biden responds to this Iranian attack, I don't think will be the making or breaking of the presidential campaign. If you look at Obama, who's completely flubbed the red lines with Syria um, and then, you know, suffered basically no electoral blowback from that. I think the, the one thing that would be a huge problem in the American election is if Biden somehow triggers an escalation which results in something that's seen as a major 
um, uh, blow up in his face. So say they kind of do some sort of escalation and then Iran responds by somehow managing to blow up an American ship or, or to hit a US embassy and kill like 20 or 30 people. You know, if there was something like that that could be pinned on him um, as a direct um, mistake, then I think that could blow up into a major American political issue. And I think that's what he'll be desperately trying to avoid. So I think although he wants to try and be seen to look pretty tough, you know, even the, the Republicans are, are, are pretty split over this anyway. You know, there's plenty of Republicans who don't want America to have any involvement in foreign wars at all and who are making that case, as well as the traditional neocon hawks who are saying that Iran needs to be bombed back into the Stone Age. So um, there's a very split picture, but what Biden needs to avoid is big American blood on his hands. So I think that'll be his primary focus. Meanwhile, the war in Gaza, probably not in voters' uh, minds in the US, neither the war in Ukraine, where um, uh, in U.S. Congress, some of the aid for Ukraine has stalled. More, though, is on the way from Europe. All 27 EU leaders have agreed a 50 billion euro aid package for Ukraine. But this money, not for the front line of the Ukrainian government. Uh, it's rather for to keep the lights on. Here's the president of the European Commission. Today is indeed a very special day. The European Council reconfirmed Europe's unwavering commitment to stand with Ukraine. We all know that Ukraine is fighting for us, so we will support them with the necessary funding and provide them with the much-needed predictability they deserve. And I think these 50 billion euros for four years also send a very strong message to Putin, just ahead of the second anniversary of his brutal invasion. Mark, there have been fears that Hungary's Prime Minister Viktor Orban would block this aid deal as he had done in December. How did the EU leaders manage to resolve that? Well, first of all, back in December when this was on the table and Orban said, no, nope, I veto that, they said, OK, well, we'll kick this into the long grass and we'll do the summit that we had yesterday. The thing is, this wasn't resolved at the summit. This was resolved at a meeting just before the summit with um, German Chancellor, French President, um, Italian Prime Minister, uh, all putting pressure on Orban. An hour and a half later, essentially, it was done in that meeting. That that clip there was uh, was interesting. You know, it was a message to Russia, she said. She also continued in that press conference that I was at to also say it was a message to Washington that, uh, you know, we've got our 50 billion. Where's your money, basically? Yeah, time, time to pony up. Yeah. Uh, Vivian, when, when you look at the, the, the aid coming from um, the EU, how much of an impact will that have on the ground? Look, this is over four years. Yeah. Uh, we're talking about... Um, you know, 12, 13 uh, per year. Um, and Ukraine's a very big country. So it's hard to know how much, you know, it'll really impact the country. But the country's in such a kind of, on such a war economy at the moment that uh, the sad fact is that even this amount of money was an enormous victory for Zelensky. Um, it, it it felt like a life-saving measure. And ironically, in the U.S., you know, um, President Trump was always saying, oh, the Europeans, they do nothing. We pay for everything. Um, and here it's sort of been flipped on them. Um, so it will be interesting to see how this kind of plays out in the U.S. in the middle of this massive political battle over Ukraine aid. 
um, where suddenly you have the EU as being the big funders and the US being the real laggards. Yeah, the shoe's on the other foot. Uh, if, if I can, just yeah. one thing, just so we're absolutely clear, <laughs> this, this money is a sort of a financial lifeline to pay teachers, pay schools. For the know, government, keep, yeah. Keep a country going during war. There are other lines that go on. I mean, part, in, part of the thing in the US is also, you know, blocking uh, continued weapon deliveries. Mm. But, right. Yeah. yeah, that's the main question, yeah. isn't it? Uh, we still need artillery. Ukraine still needs artillery. Right, this is it. I was speaking with a Ukrainian official this week, and he basically said um, that this 50 billion from the EU is going to repair their help to repair, keep their critical infrastructure going, so stuff like power, paying people's wages, keeping the country going, but they still need more weapons. They're being outgunned, outshelled by the Russians at the moment, he said, by a, a ratio of 10 to 1. That's been the case pretty much throughout. They're very worried about uh, the number of shells they're receiving. The EU had promised them 1 million shells. He says they've re received about 30% of that. They're worried about uh, Moscow's military aid drying up, also financial aid. They've got big central bank arrears um, and they've got a big um, deficit, a budget shortfall looming as well. So he's re they're really worried that the economy is going to falter as well as on the military front. That's, that's a huge concern. But in the terms of military aid, one of the things that is said that the EU is looking at and they'd welcome is using some of the money to buy US weapons and send them to Ukraine. So trying to work around this lack of aid from the US, which they hope will come, but they're, they're really not certain that it will, of course, with uh, the current standoff and, you know, the elephant in the room, which is Trump looming over the, the presidency, potentially. Yeah, meanwhile, uh, uh, Hungary's Viktor Orban reiterating that peace talks should start between Ukraine and Russia as two years have passed, that each day that goes by, tilts a war in favor of Moscow. Take a listen. Westerners continue to think that time is on their side, on our side. So the longer the war lasts, the more Ukraine's military situation will improve. But I think that the opposite is true. I think that time is on the Russian side. And the longer the war lasts, the more people will die in the balance of forces. It will not change to Ukraine's favor. So why continue the war? Uh, Nico, your reaction uh, in London? Well, I don't know if that was a translation um, error or if that was the way Orban actually said it, but he, when he described the West as they and then sort of said uh, uh, us, um, <laughs> it was, it's not quite clear which side he's on. And I think... Um, you know, I think uh, I think I think that's a very interesting part of this, and I think he's ultimately right that the longer this goes on, the more it favours them, especially if Trump is to be elected. And of course, that is the big um, question here that hovers over all of this, because if Trump is elected by the end of this year, then I mean, basically. Ukraine is going to lose the war and Russia is going to win the war. That's think, how important you, that election is because you, there is absolutely... Are European governments uh, drawing up contingencies for Trump's return to the White House already? Yeah, and I think they're panicking about it because ultimately there's not much they can do. You know, at this point, Europe has, and this is where Trump is right. And this is this is you know one of the reasons that he's he's you know his populist message resonates so well with so many Americans. Uh, you know, some of the things that he says are are right, are intrinsically true, and in that the you know the Europeans have allowed their armed forces to dwindle 
to such an extent that we are reliant on the Americans to fight these wars for us. If the US pulled out, you know, and we suddenly were reliant on the German army, the French army, the British army, you know, we just don't have enough soldiers, enough equipment, enough weapons, enough tanks. You know, we, we can't do what the Americans can do, especially if Putin, God forbid, decided to expand the war and perhaps, you know, try to creep into the Balkans, or, you know, try to creep up into kind of Estonia or, you know, one of these places. Like, there's really not that much that Europe can do without American support. And so I think what's really kind of, really kind of freaking out the capitals of Europe is that there really is not much we can do without the Americans and we're going to have to rethink the whole way that the, the, the continent is defended in the coming years because who knows, Trump might be the first of a series of populist American presidents and a new era of isolationism may be on the horizon and we need to come up with a way to defend ourselves. Yeah, and that's why um, you had talk in the British press and from a, a British uh, general this week about the possibility of conscription in the UK and getting more people involved in, in the armed forces, preparing for an eventual kind of war with Russia on the horizon. It's something that Britain hasn't thought about since the Second World War, so it's a, kind of a huge, I, huge change. If I can, the other story in Brussels, also the headquarters of NATO, we've got to choose a new NATO leader this year, yep. and this sort of thing is playing out right now. What Nico's talking about is playing out in the selection process. Looks like the front runner is the Dutch Prime Minister Mark Rutte, mainly because they think that he can be a Trump maybe not tamer, but at least someone who can talk with him. You know, the, the debate before all of this, before Trump was headed for the White House, was more maybe we should have a woman NATO leader, maybe we should have someone from the, from the Baltics. That tone has changed. So in a sign of the sort of panic, and particularly on the European military side and the American security umbrella, that's where we're really seeing it playing out. Yeah, Vivian. I'm not that pessimistic as everybody else. <laughs> Maybe I'm just living in cloud cuckoo land. But, um, firstly, we don't know that Trump is going to win this election and there's a very good chance he'll lose it. Um, but in addition, you know, there's a lot that Trump says which is bluster, um, which doesn't actually come to pass. Um, and while, yes, he might tinker around with funding for NATO, etc., Pulling the U.S. out of NATO, I think, is something else. That's and I think far. that there is, there basically he would not have his party behind him um, in that. And uh, I, I, I think that it's great that Europe is putting in place contingency plans. I just think it's a little bit far-fetched. But we saw place. Trump withdraw from UNESCO. We saw a withdrawal from the COP environmental agreements. NATO, though, that would be... Off, off limits, you think? Absolutely, yes. He pulled the U.S. out of the Paris Climate Accord. Didn't make a damn bit of difference because, you know, the U.S., every one of the 50 states put in place their own climate accord, if you like, and just went ahead without him. Um, the Iran nuclear deal. Yeah, the, 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 Iran nuclear yeah, which deal. which was the big one and just Gone. feeding into a lot of There were reported discussions with leaders like von der Leyen that we haven't been able to nail down and confirm in the public sphere, but are there that he did say that he wanted to pull the US out of NATO and have come out in the books and so on in the States that he did want to bomb Iran back then. 
<laughs> All right. Well, um, the war in Ukraine, uh, one of the major issues uh, amid ongoing uh, protests by farmers here in Europe. In France, uh, the farmers were upset over cheaper cereals and poultry from Ukraine, as well as low wages and what they deemed excessive regulation. But the two largest unions agreed to lift their blockades of key roads after winning a number of succession, uh, concessions from the French government. Protests, whether roadblocks, lane closures or demonstrations, have affected more than 150 locations around France, uh, with motorways around major cities, including Paris and Lyon, affected. affected. It was the first major crisis for France's new Prime Minister, Gabriel Attal. Among the concessions, he offered an annual 150 million euros for livestock farmers and a ban on food imports treated with pesticides already banned in France. Uh, were the concessions big enough, Mark? Are the farmers, are they going to say Well, obviously, they seem to be. I think they've taken the the, the heat out of the the protest movement for now. I mean, France was kind of at the centre. This is happening. It's still happening in Greece, still happening in Italy on a smaller scale. I think Germany as well. But France was obviously the most visual and the largest. It was interesting because, you know, Macron at uh, at the summit yesterday in Brussels, he kept us all waiting for about an hour or something. He came in. Normally he talks, he loves talking foreign policy. He loves talking about Europe. He went on his introductory remarks 80% of it was all about the farmers and the concessions and how politically Paris is with the farmers and we're going to stand up, you know, we we have the best quality food in the world and we're going to do everything for you. It was almost a domestic press conference that he gave in Brussels after this EU summit that was supposed to be on Ukraine. We have a standby from the French president. Let's listen to that real quick. Farmers can understand when we impose certain rules and regulations on production, if it's for the common good. And it's probably the profession that's had to make the most efforts and faced the most changes in the past decades. But what I myself don't understand is when we impose regulations on what we produce in Europe, but then import products from outside Europe that don't respect these regulations. So Vivian, the French president, even confused by some of the rules coming out of Brussels. I, I, I kind of agree with him in, this, <laughs> in, in the sense that, you know, you go, look, we all shop in these enormous supermarkets around Paris. You go into any supermarket, the, the, sh- the shelves are completely overrun with products from outside of France. And if you want to buy French products, they're a lot more expensive. And people simply can't afford them at the moment. There's Higher costs, tougher regulations. Inflation. Yeah. I mean, the other thing that's kind of poignant, I guess, in the story, since we're talking about France, is, you know, France has this total romance with the, um, agriculture. You know, the, the agricultural salon uh, is like a political, you know, rite of passage. A flagship like, event for the industry coming up in and, three weeks. You know, it's all about... <laughs> France profonde, you know, yeah. deep country, countryside France and other, etc. The reality mm-hmm. is you've got Gabriel Attal, Emmanuel Macron, these two total urbanites <laughs> um, who really don't know one end of the farm from the other. Um, and that's, it's, I think it's very transparent to farmers. They're being, you know, they're under governments that are essentially run in these urban, enormous capitals, um, 
who are really disconnected from the realities of what it's like to try grow food for a living. Nico, what did you make of Gabriel Attal's handling of this crisis? Uh, he's uh, urbanite, as Vivian was saying. But we did see him uh, visit a cattle farmer very quickly. He went straight to talk to the farmers. How did you think he handled the crisis? Well, I think, you know, they've they've um, kowtowed and given concessions immediately <laughs> under any pressure. So uh, you could you could say that that was handling it well. He's got himself out of his first big crisis. Um, so I, I guess that's, you know, a pat on the back. Although I think what's what's interesting about this is that we really are looking at a clash that's going to dominate the next sort of 20 or 30 years where you've got these kind of green aspirations that have been brought in. You know, a lot of the problems have been... Um, new tariffs on diesel that were supposed to come in, um, you know, clamping down on pesticides, lots of moves that were supposed to be pro-green that was agreed a few years back and were set for, you know, 2025 we're going to do this, 2030 we're going to do this. Uh, and then what keeps happening is once you get near that deadline and you realise that there are economic um, implications to these green moves, what happens is straight away is that the governments collapse and, and, and give up and they push the dates back and they agree to further concessions. to, And it's like, so it's it's very concerning when you look ahead. You know how are we going to keep to any of these agreements that we've come up with <clears throat> to try and stop climate change over the next you know twenty thirty years? If every time there's a financial cost, uh, the government immediately says, "Oh, okay, we'll put that back another ten years. Oh, okay, we'll we'll put that back five years. Oh, okay, we'll we'll continue to allow." these huge um, diesel uh, emissions. You know, farming is one of the biggest emissions going because there's all the kind of like the methane from the cows and there's the, um, the, tr the transport and, you know, the meat industry in particular is absolutely devastating for the climate. And so if, if the governments give up every single time and that's what it seems like they're going to do because there's obviously a huge, powerful agricultural lobby, then it, it just leaves you somewhat um, forlornly looking forward to these kind of um, aspirational goals on, on green improvements. Yeah, Catherine, uh, as Vivian was mentioning, we have the Paris Farm Fair later this mm -hmm. month. That's going to be it, fun this year. Yeah. So. <laughs> and in June, we had the European Parliament elections. So the French government under pressure to try to mm -hmm. get this crisis squared away. But a lot of Brussels bashing plays into the hands of the far right. Absolutely. And some of the farming unions, so there are big divisions between the farming unions, of course. Um, and some of them are very anti-EU. And so that's been really, you know, they've even, you know, pictures of them stopping some lorries and forcibly inspecting them and checking out where the goods came from, whether they come from other EU countries. So this is going to be something that you can imagine Marine Le Pen and her party are going to absolutely run with. Mm -hmm. There's already fears about how well the far right is going to do in the European elections. This kind of thing is just going to be mm. fodder for them. So I think something else that's just really important to point out um, briefly is that there's huge divisions within French farming. You've got really vast cereal farms which use loads and loads of pesticides and actually make quite a lot of money. And then you've got really small smallholders, yeah. farm workers and things, and you hear a lot about these, you know, suicides among farm workers and really, really tough living conditions. So I think something that the French government's got to do probably other governments across Europe, is to kind of target the aid 
towards these smaller producers who are not getting the huge amount of money, by the way, which French farmers get from the uh, from the European Union under the CAP, the Common Agricultural Policy. France gets nine billion euros of that a year. But a lot of it goes to these big farms. And so it needs to end up in the hands of some of the, the people who are really struggling. Uh, I was speaking to a bunch of the farmers. They, they clogged yeah. Brussels streets around the summit. And I spoke, I remember speaking to one young, I think he was about 24, young French farmer there next to his tractor. And he was still living with his parents. I mean, they've got income, monthly income of something like 500 euros, 600 euros. We're talking about very mm -hmm. low levels. They, they, they definitely feel it. And then, yeah, I think over the last 10 years, we're in France, something like a third of the farms have disappeared or basically become larger conglomerate type things. At the same time, as a consumer, I don't want the food that I buy in the supermarkets to go up any higher than they have. For me, they've it's climbed incredibly in supermarkets in Paris. So how do you balance, how do you square that circle? Yeah, um, it's a very unclear answer, but we have to move on to a more <laughs> pressing uh, matter. Our last story in uh, the world this week, a suspected Chinese spy in India has been cleared of charges and released uh, after spending eight months in detention. The identity has not been released, but... We have the photo. That's because it's a pigeon. Ujuduro <laughs> began in May when it was captured in Mumbai with two rings tied to its legs. The local media said there appeared to have Chinese writing on the legs. It's not the first time a bird has come under police suspension in India. General elections coming up in April and May. Mark, your reaction? A pigeon spy. Well, what I'm seeing there is a jailbird. Obviously, obviously, there was some foul play suspected. I wonder if they have a sort of pecking order in the way that they Ooh, go through their sausage. Three in a row. <laughs> uh, Catherine, any bird-brained puns on your uh, No, I don't have any puns. I have a lot of questions. I yes. mean, first of all, what, what was going on? Why did they keep it for eight months? Why did they let it go? Did they question it? Or did they like all the time the pigeon kept saying the same story under interrogation? So finally they went, I mean, what is going on? I can't help suspect that they just forgot about this poor pigeon in a corner of the jail somewhere and then suddenly found it and was like, oh, you should probably let this go. But I mean, who knows? Who knows? Maybe there's something more sinister going Eventually on. the pigeon was uh, released. It was revealed that it was a racing bird from Taiwan, no less. So if we want to talk about geopolitical yeah. tensions between China well, that's very and Taiwan, yes, that had fled to India, apparently, of Vivian. Have you ever covered a story like this for time? <laughs> Uh, I wish I had. I, w I want to know who interrogated the pigeon. And, yes, your next investigation. You know, did they have Vivian? like special pigeon interrogators? Was it tortured? You know, the, are there human rights violation, bird rights violation? Yeah. There's so many questions. I imagine it cleared the fit. Yeah, I, 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 I will kick it. I do remember. That, you know, we do use dogs quite often. I see that the Russians, I think, were trying to use cats for something in the war. I did a story during the Iraq war how the Americans had dolphins that were supposed to sniff out underwater mines. And they showed us these three, well, one of them had run away, two dolphins yeah. in, in pools. So, you know, animals have their place in, in the espionage world. <laughs> Nico, any nefarious animals in London? <laughs> The Commons. <laughs> well, it's funny. There's um, there's a film out um, about uh, uh, John Le Carre, a kind of biography film, um, and it's called The Pigeon Tunnel, and it op opens with these scenes of kind of him, him having flashbacks to um, pigeon shooting uh, expeditions, and he somehow brings that back to his to what inspired him to get involved in espionage. So I think 
that this pigeon probably was a spy um, and that John <laughs> Le Carre's in on it and um, that they should have shot it at dawn just to be on the safe side. Wow. <laughs> the pigeon in from the cold. Uh, that's all we have time for this week. And Nico, I want to thank you. Nico Hines joining us in London on the set was Vivian Walt, uh, Mark Berlay, and our senior reporter, Catherine Norstrand. Always a pleasure. Uh, thank you for watching. Live from Paris, coming up at the top of the hour.